Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today I'm joined by a very special guest. He's been on the show a few times already. Uh, he's the afternoon host on 610 Sports Radio in Kansas City. It's Carrington Harrison. How are you doing tonight, CDOT? Thanks for joining us. Hey, how are you guys doing? I'm happy you guys have me on today. Yeah, it's always great to have you on the show. Let's go ahead and jump right in. I think the most topical thing for us to start with would be college football. Um, obviously, neither Kansas nor Missouri are having a good year this year. You being a Missouri guy, I'm very curious to know, you know, the one thing that uh, Missouri has done that I'm kind of envious of is the fact that they've fired their defensive coordinator. I think a lot of Kansas fans would agree that uh, we're not very happy with the way that Bowen has been performing, and we would we would like to be able to move on from him, um, you know, given what he's shown us the last few years. But I'll ask you, you know, has has firing the defensive coordinator for Missouri really changed anything with the team? I mean, are there any tangible differences? I'm seeing that they're still giving up a lot of points, but um, you know, I'm I'm curious as to whether there's been scheme changes um, or if it's kind of just you know business as usual and they just need somebody to fire. No, it hasn't really led to any changes. Um, from the outside looking in, I could see how someone could think that, but Barry Odom, the head coach, had actually been calling the, the defensive play since the middle of last season when they started having problems. So he was a defensive coordinator in title only. And I think we all know how this business works, that when things are going poorly, someone has to answer for it. And there are going to be a couple of steps before the head coach is the one that has to answer for it. So the firing of Devontae Cross was more window dressing than anything. Excuse me, I don't think many Missouri fans thought that it was going to clear up or fix too many problems with the team. Yeah, I don't think that's what I wanted to hear. I was kind of hoping maybe there was a little bit more to it than him just being a scapegoat. But let's let's go ahead and pivot that over to Kansas. You know, I know that, um, you know, I've been watching these games, and it definitely looks like this defense has lost a step. I mean, they lost 
you know, a, a decent amount of uh, experience in the secondary. But, you know, I've been watching these games, and it looks like the guys just back there have absolutely no clue what's going on. Um, you know, how, how much of that do you think is the fact that they lost that talent and lost that experience, or how much of it is just that the coaches aren't really putting them in the position to be able to succeed like like we expect them to? I think it's probably a 60-40 coaching and a player part. I mean, we don't have to be naive to think that Kansas is playing with elite-level talent, but I am a firm believer of coaching is the ability to, A, motivate your players, communicate your ideas, and the ability to put guys in positions to make the correct plays. I think there's talent on KU to at least get to the point where you should be competitive in these games. And what's, I think, been the most frustrating thing aside from the defense is, you know, Central Michigan at home, that's a good gauge of where you're at in a program in year three of your head coach. You get blown out at home. You look completely outclassed against Ohio. I think those are the things that KU fans are looking for of, all right, where are we better at? I think the talent on the team has been upgraded at least in the three years that uh, David Beatty has been here, but can you hand in a win? Can you show me something a little bit more competitive on the road? Those are the things I think KU fans are kind of gauging for with their program. Yeah, and I think the part that's most frustrating is that last year we had a defense that was performing pretty well and just got way too tired out from an offense that couldn't keep them off the field at all. Uh, you know, so we were expecting this year, once we finally had an offense, that could kind of give them that support. Uh, that, you know, it would provide them with that jumping off point that they needed to really show some good improvement this year and utilize that very talented core of players they have in uh, Daniel Wise, Dorrance Armstrong, and Joe Deneen. Uh, you know, there was also thought that Mike Lee had showed enough development during his freshman year that, that we were all thinking he might be able to anchor that. Give us a good option there to keep us from hemorrhaging yards the way that we are. Instead, what we're seeing is an offense that's keeping this team somewhat competitive but a defense that isn't holding up the end of their bargain. I mean, we have teams that are scoring like crazy. You know, is this something that you could see improvement throughout the year as the younger players get better, or is there enough of a coaching issue here that it's just going to be like this all season long for them? I definitely think you can see improvement. I think that college athletics are, is a sport in which players can rapidly improve throughout the course of the season just due to maturity, bodies changing, all of the kind of things that kind of go into just being 18, 19, 20 years old. So I certainly think that I think this is a really good place to have a bye week if you're Kansas. Take a deep breath, see where you're at, and reevaluate things and come back next week. I don't think the bye week could be any more well-placed in this KU schedule. Yeah, I guess it did kind of give us a good stopping point to pause and kind of take a look at how the season has gone so far. I, I was kind of encouraged by that West Virginia game, you know, looking to see that the offense you know, was, was moving the ball against it was supposed to be a fairly competent West Virginia defense. I don't know how much of the Jayhawks you've actually had a chance to watch this season, but there has been a lot of debate, at least on our site, about just how good a QB Peyton Bender is. Um, he, he came in knowing enough about the air raid that we were expecting him to be able to you know, come in and make all those throws that, that you need in, in, in this type of system. But uh, instead, we seem to have seen a lot of indecision, a lot of questionable throws, and overall just kind of lack of quality play that we were expecting to see from him. There's obviously some some talent there. He's got uh, some some arm strength, um, you know. And I mean, he was fairly talented enough to be able to run the air raid, uh, you know, for at least a little while in his previous stops. But what's what's been your overall impression of him so far? 
I like what I've seen so far. I watched a good deal of the game against West Virginia when they played. So, and I watched a lot early. I watched probably the first half of the Ohio game, a lot of the last game against West Virginia, and some of the first game that KU played this season. So, I watched a, I watched a decent amount of KU football. I like what I've seen so far. I think more than anything with Kansas, it just has to be a continuity at the quarterback position. When you've kind of been in that situation that KU's been in the last three, four five or six seasons, it's just been a revolving door quarterback. I like Peyton Bender. I hope they continue to give him an opportunity and to develop just based on where he is in his career. Yeah, and I don't think the offensive line has really helped him out much at all at this point. I, I do find it a little bit strange that they seem to be so good at run blocking, you know, especially given that performance that they had in West Virginia, but the pass blocking is basically non-existent. And, you know, I've, I've heard people in the past say that, you know, that run blocking is a lot easier uh, and, and I have kind of personally bought into this at times, but but what are your thoughts on that? Is is it just that run blocking and pass blocking are so different that it's easier for this offensive line to be good at run blocking, or is there nothing really to that and we just really need to see some improvement from this offensive line? I've talked to Ryan Lilger about this. Ryan Lilger, he comes on our shows Mondays at 3.30, and I've kind of talked to him about the concept of offensive lining and what makes it easier. I think the run blocking is easier for players because when you think about it, run blocking is just – Guy right in front of you, you don't really need to know pass protections of, all right, back up. If they do a stunt, who do I need to block and all that kind of stuff? I just think the natural football movement is to move forward. So I think in those run blocking situations, that what creates the – it appears that it's easier to run block, run block than pass block. And, again, this is not me. I weigh 180 pounds. This is all information I've gotten from Ryan Lilger. Yeah, I last played football back in middle school, and you know, I, I was a lineman as well. And really, all that I remember was that it, it did seem that run blocking was easier, not only because of what you're saying, but also because you know you're you're blocking for a target that's also moving. When you're pass blocking, you have a guy who's trying to stay stationary so he can read the defense and make an accurate throw. You know, if if your defender makes a pass, you have to find a way to recover and keep him from getting to that one spot where the QB is supposed to be. When you're run blocking, the guy you're protecting is also moving. And so the goal becomes not really keeping him from getting to a specific spot, but moving him enough, uh, you know, that, that it opens up a hole and the runner can read that and then pick his spot to get upfield. So uh, I can, I can definitely see a lot of that being true just because of the nature of the goal that you have in each of those situations. And I mean, when you just, when you watch football now, it is again, I, I think what makes pass blocking a more difficult thing is when you think about it, it's that split second where your body has to rise and you kind of have to get up. And if you're on the Island and left and right tackle, you have to kind of acknowledge who you have to block, which makes it more difficult. And these outside linebackers, DNs are just getting to the point. They're so athletic. It's just, it's asking a lot to consistently do, especially at the talent level that KU's at recruiting level and all the things like putting together a hard offensive line. Hell, it's hard in the NFL right now. If you see the shortage of good offensive linemen, it is, it's certainly hard at the college level with so many teams. Yeah, definitely. All right. So let's pivot over to basketball. Now I know that there's been a lot of national news breaking in, in the college basketball world. I, I keep meaning to tune in to what you guys are saying over there on uh, 610 sports, but not living in KC anymore makes it a, a bit harder to, you know, get get tuned in consistently. I am, though, curious to hear your thoughts on that whole basketball recruiting scandal, you know, the whole Adidas slash assistant coaches slash recruiting uh, bribery scheme. Wh- what do you think this means for college basketball? Is this something that's going to fundamentally change the way that college basketball is working, or is this the kind of stuff that's going to happen under the table regardless of how this, this case turns out? 
I sure hope this is that kind of, quote, watershed moment when it comes to college athletics. I just think we've seen that there was no way that the NCAA, when they first created the rules, could have envisioned how big college sports was going to be, the impact of shoe companies, the impact of television, and all the things they get into it. I don't want to get into a large pay-for-play or Olympic model argument, but I just find it hard for anyone to support the current system when no one was surprised by the development which happened. I think we've all known this. Major shoe company that spends billions of dollars on college athletics is trying to follow the best high school basketball players to their university that they support. Like, come on now. Like, we all kind of knew this was happening behind the scenes. So when this happened, no one is just stunned at the amount of money. And the federal government, in one of those subpoenas I was reading online, they have gauged a top-flight recruit worth to attract to a certain university at 100000 to $150,000. So we all know these players are big business. And what billion-dollar company isn't corrupt? When there's that much at stake, there's so much money to be gained by attracting a top-flight recruit to your school. I think we all knew what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, and it's weird. I mean, I've heard an argument that the only reason this falls under FBI jurisdiction is because the assistant coaches involved are employed by state institutions in those public universities. You know, if they weren't involved in this thing at all, then technically the behavior wouldn't really be illegal. It wouldn't, you know, fall under the FBI jurisdiction there. Obviously, we all realize that these deals are, are ethically shady, but if these college coaches hadn't been involved, or even if, you know, it was ones from private schools instead of public schools, do you think we would be hearing about this at all right now? Yeah, but I guess I would say, though, without college coaches, Adidas would just be able to pay said athlete individually, and it wouldn't have to be negotiated through an assistant coach. Like, I think more than anything, the system, to me, it creates that black market, and it creates the need for the middleman, where it's not like Nike can individually go to Michael Porter and say, hey, we'd love for you to go to a Nike school. We'll offer you $150,000 to go play at our top-flight Nike institution. If we could have that system, we would eliminate a lot of this. Well, an AAU coach got paid $250,000 allegedly by Jay Williams to attract Kevin Love to UCLA. Like, I think that the system creates this black market because if you can't pay the athletes directly, you'll just find ways to pay them indirectly. Yeah, true. I, I think there's also an argument to be made, though, that having this stay underground helps to inflate the value for some of these guys. I mean, if this was just you know, out there in the open and we were paying guys to go to specific school, schools, it would immediately be clear which school was, you know, quote-unquote best for each of the shoe companies. You'd, you'd routinely see, you know, the, the top Nike school going against the top Adidas school going against the top Under Armour school. And really, I think it would result in, you know, the best players going to particular top schools, getting the most money, being paid the most. Um, you know, it would set up kind of this tier system with, with clear divisions between the schools. I think, it though, it does seem to benefit the system as a whole to have all of this underground because people then can't really see exactly where the big money guys are coming up to. It allows everybody kind of that opportunity to think that their school is the one that the kid is getting pushed to at that point. Yeah, but I guess I, mean, I would argue that that's already happening and we know what's happening under the schemes and we've signed up for that system. Duke gets all the talent. Kansas gets all the talent. North Carolina gets all the talent. Kentucky gets all the talent. So let's not make it seem like there's this bevy of wealth that's been spread out that when I look at the rivals top 20, they're all going to the same schools. And I'm not saying they're being pushed to the schools 
but we've already signed up for a tier system. Kansas and Kansas State are not playing at the same level. Yes, they're both at the Big 12 level, but we clearly know that Kansas is in a tier above schools like Iowa State, Kansas, uh, and Missouri. So we've already signed up for that in the beginning. And I would say in a sport like basketball, there's always going to be the Damian Lillard that doesn't go to a top school that goes to another school that's able to beat him. That I think we've already seen this creation of super teams with AAU where so-and-so has a friend that wants to get him a scholarship offer, so they're on this team. So we're already seeing that happen anyway. I just think it would just be a more regulated ordeal. And my biggest argument is I think that in the end, treating the players like employees will end up being a negative for the uh, student-athlete that if you are just going to say, hey, Josh Jackson, if you want to come to Kansas, we're happy to give you your likeness, but you have to then pay for your own way. I think that creates a can of worms that is ultimately bad for the players. But I've never heard a very convincing argument of why players are not able to have independent endorsements. Like, why is Devontae Graham not eligible to be the spokesperson for a restaurant and make $20,000 to do the commercials like everyone else could? I've never really heard a model of why that can't work in college athletics. Yeah, you won't ever get an argument from me about the amateurism rules. I mean, I think they're all very archaic, and they don't really serve a legitimate purpose. As it stands right now, if these guys are, are amateurs, you know, they're they're being forced to rely on the schools and the NCAA for everything. And since college right now is the clearest path to the NBA, it's allowing all the money to be funneled through the schools. But, you know, I, I definitely do agree with you. I'm, I'm all for something like that. I just think that part of the reason it's been so successful staying under the radar is that there's the potential. I mean, you hear about it all the time in, in like Major League Baseball about you know the guy, the teams that are paying for all the best players, who's throwing their money around all the time and things like that. It, and that causes all kinds of animosity, um, you know, when it's, when everything's out in the open. And so I think in a way it's it's kind of helping them a little bit to not have that out there at the forefront where it's just plain for everyone to see. I mean, we all know it's happening. Anyone who pays any kind of attention at all to college basketball knows that this stuff is happening. But without being able to prove where it's happening uh, and who's getting that money, you know, and who's paying the money and exactly which schools are benefiting from this directly, it kind of helps to, in a way, legitimize it a little bit. I mean, I, I, you know, I was listening to some, some of the other guys uh, putting out the podcast. I believe it was the, the CBS guys who, who were talking about. Um, you know, they actually went out and talked to a bunch of different coaches about this when the, when the story first broke. And they said that none of the coaches that they talked to were surprised at all. You know, everybody knew it was going on. A lot of people didn't even seem to necessarily have a problem with the shoe company guys helping them to recruit kids. Um, you know, they didn't necessarily know that money was being directly paid and they didn't like sign off on money being directly paid uh, to those players. But, you know, they knew they had guys in the shoe companies that were kind of helping to steer them. Uh, towards their own programs to kind of help them recruit the guys that they were needing. So, I, you know, I think it's gotten to the point where everybody knows it's going on, but because it's happening under the table and it's not shoved in everyone's faces, that it has been legitimized a little bit. You know, I would definitely be all for bringing that out in the open and making it so that everybody can see what's going on, so that we know who is being pushed to where, um, you know, and, and ultimately who all is benefiting. But, you know, I, I do agree that it would be better for everyone if it was out there in the open. No, you're right. I guess my only argument, I guess, will be different. It sounds like we agree on 95% of it. I would just say the 5% that we disagree on is I think people already know that's happening. Like, you and I seem like we both follow college recruiting pretty well. How many times have we seen a kid's list where four of the schools make a lot of sense and then one of them doesn't make a lot of sense? Like, we all oh, yeah. think it. Like, 
Holmes, you got Kansas, Duke, and then there's Western Kentucky only. You know what I mean? Like, hold on, these schools don't seem very even. Like, I can't, I'm surprised there in the conversation. But I think we all think those things all the time. But I think the transparency that you talk about, sure, I think like with anything, with change comes a little bit of a backlash because it's different. But in baseball, we just know that the pay discrepancy exists. And I think we already know that. I guess to go back to the recruiting example, if you see someone's last three and it's Virginia, Kansas, and Iowa State on it, I think we all know what school the kid's going to, but it creates this magical suspense for us to go on rival pages and SB Nation pages and read about it. I just think, at least in this sense, the public, when it comes to college athletics, is far more cynical than I think the NCAA gives it credit. And that's why whenever we see a story like what just happened with Louisville, no one is surprised. Like, I am a firm believer that every major Power 5 D1 school commits a major recruiting violation, whether it be inappropriate contact, whether it be you taking a kid and you buying a dinner when you're not supposed to, whether it's hooking somebody up with a job under the radar, wink, wink, that we all know has happened. Like, kid gets a scholarship, all of a sudden his mom gets a new house and she's the top nurse at the local hospital. Like, I think I was set up in a way that's probably illegal. But I just think that stuff happens all the time. We know about it. We laugh about it. Everybody made blue chips references. I just think the college fan is far more cynical than they give credit. Yeah, and, and I do want to clarify, when you're talking about, you know, quote-unquote illegal, you're meaning in a way that's against NCAA rules as opposed to, you know, being against the law. And, and I, you know, I do think that what the current system allows is that when someone goes to one of these schools that absolutely no one saw coming, at least fans can rationalize, oh, well, this guy came here because he wanted the playing time or, you know, he came because he had a really strong local tie or some other reason, you know, other than, hey, he was given a big fat check for $100,000 or, so, or, you know, something like that. As it stands right now, it allows people to gloss over that when it isn't, you know, they, they can gloss over that fact of, kids getting money when it's not convenient for them to think about it um doing it out in the open you know i think there would be a big backlash you know now we know exactly what's going on there's no questioning why someone went to a particular school because we know if they got paid a whole bunch to go there you know i think that's where you would see that backlash not saying that that should prevent us from bringing it out in the open um i'm just saying that even though we all know what's going on now without having those specific details we can rationalize it away saying well no this guy came for the right reasons. You know, he came because he wanted to be part of our culture and our history of the school, not because someone handed him a big fat check. No, you're right. I guess to me, the rules that people accept and the rules they don't accept are just always kind of funny to me. And I, so, yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely agree with you that some of it is the people don't want to know how the sausage is made. So if you tell them, Hey, Josh Jackson is here because Adidas paid Kansas or Adidas paid Josh Jackson $150,000 to be there. And then afterwards, he's going to sign a contract with Adidas. I certainly think that would create some kind of backlash with the fan base. So I definitely get that. But I guess back to my point about the rules is, I mean, the NCAA has a rule that allows Michael Porter's dad to be hired to the staff. Like, so hold on, you can't pay Michael Porter the money to go to Missouri, but you can pay his dad the largest sum that any assistant coach has been paid. So like, what's stopping his coach from just taking the team out to dinner all the time? He's the coach of the team. Like, how can they stop him from doing that? Like, it's just so many weird gray areas that are created by NCAA rules that, hold on, we'll follow this rule because it's an NCAA rule, but we all know that it's a little shady and his dad got a job that he probably wasn't qualified for, but we now have some moral outrage if tomorrow at Oak Park Mall, Devontae Graham signed 100 autographs and made $100 a piece off of him. Like, we don't want the evolution of college athletics 
to move to that is just always very weird to me. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree with that. All right, let's go ahead and jump off this topic. We could probably spend, you know, hours just talking about that and how all that goes. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to dwell on that for too much longer. Let's let's go ahead and jump over and, and take a look at the season that's coming up for basketball. Obviously, you know, the big story in the uh, offseason, we, we kind of already talked about it for Missouri with Michael Porter Jr. coming over to Missouri um, and then kind of everybody else that came with him at that point. Um but, you know, we also had a discussion, you know, back in the summer about the rivalry and Bill Self's comments and all that stuff. But, you know, looking forward to basketball this season, both KU and MU should be really good squads this year. Um, Missouri had, a, you know, that huge infusion of talent and KU's building on this system that's been really, really successful for them. And, of course, obviously, whenever Bill Self is involved, it's hard to imagine that there's going to be a regular season that's not going to be successful for them. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually interested enough in Missouri basketball um, personally that, you know, I'm kind of curious as to how it's going to turn out for him. Um, let's, let's take a look at the schedules real quick. What are a couple key games that you see coming up in the first couple months really for, for, for both these teams, but specifically, um, to kind of start with Missouri, you know, they obviously have what look to be some really big games coming up on the schedule, but you know, we've all seen games that look like they're going to be huge at the beginning of the year that don't turn out that way when we get to tournament time. Um, and conversely, you know, we have some that don't look like they're going to be really good games, but it ends up being a close, exciting game. And then it turns out that both those teams are really good. So I'm, I'm, I'm just interested, which uh, games on that schedule are you highlighting there for, for both KU and for MU? Um, for Missouri, I think the big game for them kind of just kicks things off at the beginning. Missouri, the first game of the season plays Iowa state at home and, I think that's a really good litmus test to find out how much better this team is than last season. You get that kind of home environment, obviously a big non-con win. It should be sold out. It's Michael Porter's first game. Again, big 12 team. We know Iowa state travels. I expect a lot of booing because that's just what Iowa state fans do. Yes. But I think, <laughs> I, I think that first game, it's, it's very fitting that they just, they don't give you a mid-Tennessee state at home. They kind of get things going, and they play a big game from the beginning. I would say the other non-con game from Missouri, obviously, is Illinois. They play them. I think it's December 23rd. Right. They play Illinois. And I think that game, obviously, is big because of the rivalry and the bragging rights and all of that. But Jeremiah Tillman committed to Illinois and then decommitted once they hired Conzo Martin and then kind of went through a month where he was kind of back and forth and listening to school. He was in Kansas with North Carolina and then eventually committed to Missouri. So I think that's a game that's going to be circled. It's not going to have some kind of Eric Gordon, Indiana, Illinois kind of bad blood, but I think that's a game that people are looking forward to when it comes to Missouri. Um, for Kansas, I guess just general thoughts, and I'll kind of get into games that I like. I'm really excited this year about Devontae Graham. I think Devontae Graham has like perfectly kind of played his role the last couple of seasons, and now I think he knows and everybody knows like this is his team. And how is he going to kind of take this team to the first Final Four, at least in a little bit for Kansas State, a little bit? What was it, 2011, 2012? Like, hasn't been that long, but kind of get them back to that point. So I'm pretty excited. Like, I think KU, obviously, pretty good team, really deep roster. I'm curious to see how the kind of inclusion of Malik Newman kind of goes because Speed's been there, Devontae Graham's been there, and KU, at least early on, normally doesn't have those kind of high-profile transfers. So I'm kind of curious to see how he is kind of brought into the mix. Game-wise, I mean, just seems pretty obvious. Kansas plays Kentucky on November 14th, the right. Champions Classic, always two big games. you got, what, seven of the top 
15 recruits in the country playing in the game. Always fun. Those games are always like really sloppy in the beginning of the season, kind of up and down pace. Those are always a lot of fun. And I think it's just with how unique the game is, Kansas playing Syracuse in Miami, I think it's pretty interesting of a game, kind of a different environment. Like doesn't really make a lot of sense, at least on the outside, why Kansas and Syracuse would be playing a game there. But obviously Miami, one of the larger cities in the country, fertile recruiting ground, makes a lot of sense for both sides to do that. Those are the nine kind of games I think you have to really schedule, at least with both Kansas and Missouri. Yeah, and to speak to that Syracuse game, that's actually part of, it's called the Hoop Hall Miami Invitational. And that's kind of what you're starting to see now with, with a lot of these early season invitationals. You know, they'll invite two or four major teams, schedule a lot of affiliated games at the home sites of those those two headliners to kind of round out the invitational field. So, so you get your traditional, you know, four to six, uh, sometimes eight teams in the quote-unquote tournament. Um, but basically... Um, you know, it, it, it allows them to kind of guarantee a big game against other big name teams. Um, and they schedule it at the neutral venue that's associated with the invitational site. Um, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't sound like it makes sense at first blush, but, but when you really dig into it, it's essentially an, e- an early season tournament with a championship game already guaranteed. Um, it's, it's a model that they've kind of moved a lot more to in the last few years because they want to get those big matchups early and kind of guarantee that they're going to sell out the championship venue. Um, you know, we all remember those big upsets that they had in some of the, uh, I think it was probably about nine or 10 years ago. Um, you know, you had, you had some teams that were losing to on their home floor to teams they had no business losing to. And then because it was set up like a true tournament format, they lost the big name team. And it caused all kinds of problems with ticket sales and things like that. So really, it's just, you know, there's four games for Kansas that are included. Um, they're, they're playing Texas Southern, Oakland, and Toledo in the, like, the week and a half before that Syracuse game. Um, and all of those are under that, you know, that Hoop Hall Miami Invitational umbrella. Um, I don't know that I necessarily like it, you know, in terms of tournament. If, if you're going to play a tournament, I kind of like to see a tournament. But, you know, it does give us a little bit more experience. It does give a lot of those other you know, lower tier schools, a chance to go to these kind of venues um, as part of this. And so, you know, and it does at least guarantee that we get one good matchup out of it. Yeah. I mean, I guess how you're describing it, it sounds like what happens in Brooklyn and what they do at the Barclays center. Like they do a very similar thing, kind of like what the CBE is that why would UCLA and all these teams be playing games in Kansas city? Sounds like the exact same thing. So pretty cool though. I mean, Different kind of plays. Kansas doesn't play in Miami too often. A nice little destination. If you live in Lawrence, you live in Kansas City, you're definitely happy to get out of the weather for a couple of days. So should be a pretty cool event. Yeah, I actually used to live down in that area across the state of Florida. And so, you know, I was looking forward to getting over there and and getting a chance to see them down there. Uh, I'm not down there anymore, though, so I I won't get to. But, you know, that's that's kind of a big plus is that it gives the, the local fans in the area of the tournament that don't usually get a chance to go see their their team up close and personal, a chance to actually go and watch them, um, you know. So so that's a big draw and being able to have it down in places like that where you you know the, the other big one is also that that's kind of an area that they're trying to recruit. Um, you know, obviously uh, basketball's not as big down in Florida as stuff like football or even baseball, but I mean there are quite a few talented um, players down there, and so it makes sense to go down into an area where you don't normally get a lot of exposure and get that additional recruiting exposure down there. So 
But to jump back to your thoughts on, on Devontae Graham, you know, those of us who watched the Jayhawks over there in Italy, um, we, we saw Malik Newman take on the role of a main scorer in the backcourt instead of Graham. So, you know, I think what a lot of people, they first heard that Graham was coming back for a senior season, and they kind of envisioned he was going to take on the, the, the Frank Mason type of role, um, you know, where he would be the go-to guy. He would run the offense and do a lot of that heavy lifting on his own. Uh, I don't think that really fits Graham's style, though. You know, he's been a facilitator in most of his time here. Uh, you know, he's shown that comfort level in sitting back and finding people in the offense to, to keep it moving and, and, and to keep it going along. Um, so finding someone like Newman in a transfer that can come in and can kind of take over that scoring role from the one or the two spots kind of frees Graham up to continue his normal role um, and utilize his, his, his talents kind of the best way possible. And he has shown the ability to step in to that scoring role if the team absolutely needs it but he definitely seems to be a lot more comfortable as a facilitator. And so having a transfer like Newman is kind of key to keeping him in that comfort level, allowing him to excel and potentially having, um, you know, what could potentially be an All-American year for him as well. That's the part of Devontae's game that probably excites me the most. Like Devontae in any given situation can kind of be what you need him to be. If you go into the game, I think if Bill tells him, hey, we don't need you to score tonight, we need you to be a facilitator, I think he can go out there and give you seven points and 12 assists. I think if Self goes to him and says, hey, we need you to be an alpha dog, we need you to score today, he can score 23 points. That I think what excites me a lot about his game, obviously, is just his ability to adapt to the situation. And I've always just liked him because I think we see too many times in college basketball situations that at the end of the game, kids have no idea how to get a good shot. And we'll just see dribble, 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 bad three at the end of the game that just doesn't really do much. I've always liked Devontae's mindset and how he attacks the end of the game situation, going two basket, taking smart mid-range jump shots. I just don't think a lot of college players do. So I've always been really fond of his game. I watched a lot of Malik Newman when he was at um, Mississippi State. I actually saw him play at UMK, UMKC when he was there. And because he was in the SEC and Missouri's in the SEC, I watched him play a whole lot. He's a pretty dynamic scorer. I didn't really see the one-and-done talent, which makes a lot of sense why he transferred and, and decided to come back to school. I didn't see that for him, but I'd be surprised if he didn't have a good season. He kind of seems like someone that's going to average 15 to 17 points, probably 15 and 5, 17 and 5, somewhere in that range. I think he's a guy that can eventually play in the NBA, but I think he'll have kind of moments of inconsistency. Like he can have a little bit of Wayne Sell in his game. I can see KU fans kind of being frustrated, kind of feel the consistency of his game, maybe not always being there. But at the end of the season, I actually think Newman's going to be a better college player no Wayne Seldon was. He was just a little bit too up and down for my liking. I never fully bought into Wayne Seldon as a college player, but he actually tried to do a decent NBA player. Like, I think he has a chance yeah. to get a decent contract um, at some point. But no, I, I think I think that Newman can be a better college player than Wayne Seldon was. I think I think he's going to be a good fit on that team again. I don't think Devontae is going to have a problem with kind of stepping to the side and letting Newman be the alpha dog if he needs to. I'm, I think the most interesting guy on KU's team is actually Speed. I've never really seen it with speed the way other people have seen it. Like, I don't really understand the hype. He's somebody that doesn't do one thing exceptionally well to me. I just think he is an adequate college basketball player that I'm surprised every year at the end of the season there's this is he coming back argument, is he NBA ready argument that I'm kind of curious to see if speed can now take that next step in his game where you can say, all right, I get it now. Like, I see what people have always been talking about with him. Yeah, I think what intrigues most people with him is just, you know, how young he is. But also, he's he's shown enough of development 
and enough kind of base of skills that he could be a good three and D guy in the NBA. Um, you know, he's, he's undoubtedly probably going to be a project, but he could develop into a decent role player in the league. And, and because of that youth, you know, he'd even have time to develop into that role, but still have a solid NBA career. Um, I think that's where the intriguing part is that because he's so young, but he has so much college experience, you know, people are kind of seeing what they want him to be or what they'll think he'll get to instead of where he is right this moment. Um, now he's been good enough at college, you know, that he can be in that discussion as a productive NBA player. Uh, you know, he's shown the ability to shoot the three, play consistent defense, but you know, you are definitely right that I think there's, you know, he hasn't been a standout star. That's definitely going to make it as a pro. There's just a lot of potential that people are seeing. And so they're, they're kind of buying into the hype there. No, that part actually makes a lot of sense. And I guess one of my frustrations with speed in the conversation is, well, do you like speed's game or do you like speed's age? That I understand maybe the hype around speed is, man, he's 17 years old and look at the things that he can do. Well, all right, that's understandable. I can understand that point. What I'm saying is now we watch speed play, what, 60, probably more than that, 80 college basketball games. Like, how many times have you watched speed play and thought you were watching an NBA player? Like, that just hasn't happened that many times to me. But, again, I just asked the question, do you like speed game or do you like how old he is? Because if the argument is, hey, he's 17 years old, think about when he's 22, 23, all right, I can kind of envision that a little bit. Like, let's keep letting him see how he develops because I'm pretty sure he'll be, what, 19 by the time he's done with college and, and moving on to be a pro. That I could, I could see Speed taking that big jump at 21, 22 and becoming a decent player. I just don't see it now. It's my expectation for Speed kind of heading into the season. I think he'll have a good season, but I think I'll just still have those moments of this guy's not that NBA player people maybe want him to be. Yeah, I know KU fans have seen quite a bit of him playing for the Ukraine national team every summer. He's put up some pretty big numbers in a starring role over there. That there's enough of you know potential to develop into a good NBA player. Um, maybe we have been overhyping him a bit because he's a KU guy, but there were legitimate questions about whether he was going to go to the NBA this year. Um, you know that there was legitimate talk he would have been drafted if he went this year. Probably wouldn't have been you know until the mid to late second round. Um, there was at least enough talk there to say they had a shot at starting a good pro career right now. So obviously someone saw something that they liked, but I'm not sure if that was driven primarily by his age, uh, you know, but his, his time here at KU, he has shown that he has that, that talent base and he has been improving. So, uh, but this is, I, I, I do agree that this is the year he probably has to make that leap. Um, the issue is that there's so many other pieces around him. He may have a hard time standing out, you know, on this team and show that improvement that he probably needs to get a good NBA draft spot. I think that this year, at least with this KU team, I think part of the joy of watching this team grow is obviously last year there was a pretty dominant big three with Josh Jackson, Frank Mason, and Devontae Graham that you kind of felt like, all right, once you got past the three, there was a clear divide of talent. And I think KU's obviously going to have good players again. I think that Malik Newman and Devontae Graham are going to have good years. I think you see this year being a lot more balanced, especially by the end of the season than maybe it was last year. Like, Azabuki's, you know, he's back, he's healthy, he played well in Italy. I could see him kind of being that third, fourth best player on the team. Billy Preston, KU, always has a freshman that contributes to this team. So I just think this year there's a chance that it's a lot more balanced than it was last season and not dependent on Josh and Frank going out there and having monster games for that team. Yeah, and, and the injury to Azabuki last year messed up a lot of what we were trying to do on the inside, leaving us really with only Landon Lucas 
as the main consistent contributor down low. So, you know, there was a lot riding, or I'm sorry, there is a lot this year riding on us not having that same sort of issue with, with Billy Preston and Azubuke. Um, you know, we, we have this hope, obviously, that if one of those guys go down, that Mitch Lightfoot can step up. Uh, he supposedly put on quite a bit of muscle mass over the summer to kind of help him, you know, man up down low and be able to, to kind of stick around where he wasn't able to last year. We do have a few more guys we can rely on to get some of that balance down low as well. So overall, I think that balance is what's going to make it hard for someone like Fee to stand out, um, you know, especially considering he's not, you know, really considered to be one of our main guys. So I, I do think, though, that Bill Self will, will stick to his trend, you know, of trying to find ways to feature his seniors, especially Fee, or, um, you know, even in places that don't necessarily make perfect sense for him inside the offense. As a KU fan, do you kind of like these teams more? Like, I know it's kind of cliche to do, but when you think back to 2008, kind of comparing kind of the future KU teams to that team, that's how that team was. Now, obviously, you had stars and you had guys that eventually went to the NBA, but that team was pretty balanced and had five, six guys that could beat you. It seems like this team could have that kind of talent. Now, I don't think they have the high-end talent that the 08 team did. I don't think they have as many future NBA guys and are as deep as that 08 team was, but – you've got a team that's pretty balanced. That's certainly a lot different than last year. It was clear who the stars of the team were. It was Frank and um, Josh Jackson, a guy that we knew was going to be picked top five in the lottery. Frank Mason, I thought, was the best college player last year, aside from Lonzo Ball. I think you can make a pretty good argument for him. But Frank was just such a dominant college player. I was He would have got my vote to win uh, the Naismith Award last year. Do you like those kind of KU teams more that have the two, three guys at the top? Or do you like what it could appear this team to be? That's seven deep, pretty balanced. And if one guy fouls out, it's not the end of the world. That's a really hard question to answer. Nostalgically, you know, I remember the teams that had one or two stars that served as the identity of that team. I think a whole lot more than one, you know, that had a big group of guys that were all equally as, as a, or had equally as much star power. I mean, you know, the the teams that really stick out are the ones that had the Morris Twins or the ones that were Sharon and Cole or Wiggins and MB, you know, teams where there was a couple clear-cut main guys who are the ones you remember a lot better because you can associate that that team with just that single group of players. Um, but, you know, that, that 08 team was a hell of a lot more fun, um, especially since they won the title. You know, there was also the added element of excitement. Because really, you had no clue where the spectacular performance was coming on any particular night. You know, I I, th- I think um, I had more fun in that moment when it could be any number of people that could have come in and had a phenomenal game. That, you know, could have just won the game for us. When, when you don't know where that spectacular perform- performance is going to be coming from, you are on the edge of your seat, kind of waiting for someone to break out and, and put the game on their uh, on their back. There, with, with so much talent, it's nearly impossible to get to a point where you. Um, you know, thought you were going to lose a game. So that really made it a whole lot more fun because you really felt like you were in any of them, no matter how dire the situation got. Uh, But if, you know, if if I'm remembering big performances and teams that kind of stick out in my mind, it's definitely got to be the teams that had just one or two main stars that can take control. Obviously, Mason and Jackson is still so fresh in everyone's minds just being last season. But, you know, I, I get the feeling that in 10 to 15 years, when everyone's talking about the teams they remember the most, from the first, you know, 20 years or so of Bill Self, of, of the Bill Self era, there's going to be the title team because they won the title. 
or potentially that, that 2011-2012 team that wasn't expected to go anywhere, but pushed through the NCAA tournament to make it to the title game uh, when they really had no business, you know, getting there. Um, and then this most recent season, thanks to Frank Mason, you know, his, his underdog story, taking the nation by storm, you know, he wasn't really coming out of nowhere, but there, but, you know, for, for the, for the people that didn't really pay attention to the nitty gritty of college basketball, he really did kind of surprise a lot of people bursting onto the national scene, um, you know, using his, his underdog story, um, as, as kind of the feel good that helped him to lock up the national player of the year. Now, I mean, not that he didn't deserve it. He played absolutely phenomenally. And I think you'd have a hard time justifying any one particular guy that was clear cut, you know, above him that he didn't deserve the award and just adding in that, that story, um, not only kind of sealed that for him, but also kind of clinches that in the mind of, you know, Kansas fans and other fans that that, that was really his team. So I think that's going to help in terms of trying to remember this team later. You know, so, I mean, and, and really that kind of illustrates the point that, you know, anytime you have a guy that can become the identity of that team, it's going to be a whole lot easier to remember that team, to associate good memories with that team, because you're only thinking about one guy. You're not having to think about all the different pieces that have to come together um, for for a, a really good team. It's the kind, kind of a cast of characters there. And I think what's really made KU unique in both of these situations that we talk about, obviously they're good problems to have, have a team like last year's KU team or a team that's pretty deep that you can obviously make a run with it. KU has been really fortunate to always have a guy that you feel pretty confident to take the last shot. Last year, if you were down one and needed a big shot, you could give the ball to Frank Mason, you could give the ball to a top five pick, or you could give the ball to Devontae Graham, who I think is as clutch as any player in college basketball. Yeah. Or in 08, if you needed Sharon, obviously if you needed Mario Chalmers to hit a big shot, you could do that. So KU is in a very good situation, like to kind of compare it to a team. Last year, I don't know if Duke had that player. I don't know if you trusted Grayson Allen at the end of the game, Jason Tatum, who's a really good player. Like I think that was Duke's biggest problem last year, that they they never really created – that image and had that guy. And that's why they ended up kind of having a disappointing season, turning it on late. But I just thought they had too many, too many potholes and not enough asphalt to fill all the holes late in the season. They got bounced from the tournament pretty early. KU's always been able to avoid that problem. Yeah, definitely. I, I would, I would have to agree with you there. Um, one final question before we turn over to the Twitter Q and a, um, who, who do you think is that X factor for each of the teams this year? I mean, I, th- I think this could potentially be a year that KU and MU might actually see each other in the NCAA tournament. I know, I know we seem to talk about that every year, and it never happens. But, um, you know, I think both these teams are, are good enough that that's a distinct possibility. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear who that off-the-radar guy might be, especially for Missouri, that would have a, you know, a, a big impact that would be seemingly out of nowhere for those that, that don't know the team very well. Um, that's a good question. Um, I would say my answer might be Jordan Barnett. I think Jordan Barnett is one of the great athletes in college basketball that people just don't know about. Not calling him a great player, but I don't know if there's many guys that have the bounce and athleticism that he does and for a team that obviously lacks a lot of experience and certainly winning experience to have a guy that's going to be a senior who obviously knows there's going to be a lot of NBA scouts around, so maybe wants to elevate his game in front of those. I think he's going to be a very important part to this season. I'm curious to kind of see how their starting lineup's going to stack. 
I think the beauty of this Missouri team is they just have so many different combinations. I mean, they can play Michael Jonte and Jeremiah Tillman and have 6'10", 6'9", 6'11", from three through five that just not many teams can match up with that, especially at the level that Missouri is that creates a lot of matchup problems and the versatility. Michael could, Michael can play all five positions at college. John Tate can probably play three different positions, three through five. Uh, they just kind of have a lot of versatility, but I think Jordan Barnett is going to kind of be that guy for KU. I mean, maybe this is a, a bad answer for an X factor. I really think that person's fee. Like, I don't think anyone knows what speed could be this season. Like speed could be a guy that averages 14 points a game. Or he could continue to kind of be a role guy with this team and not take that big step forward. I think as a Buki, maybe as an X-Factor kind of guy, but I think he's going to be really good this season. I think you were kind of seeing it last year and the light was starting to turn on and then he got injured. And then what we've seen in Italy, he was a really good player. So I would say for Missouri, I would say Jordan Barnett. For KU, I'd say Speed and uh, Azabuki. Yeah, I, I don't think Azabuki qualifies as an X-Factor. I mean, we're all expecting really big things from him this year as one of our main rotation guys. And and based on, you know, what he did last year before he got injured and his performance in Italy, although that, that may not be saying much, you know, given the quality of the competition over there. That was the thing, like how powerful he looked was the kind of lasting image to me. I probably watched, I watched a little bit of it. I feel like I watched so much stream of it on the internet, or maybe I'm tripping, but I know I've seen plays and stuff from it. And as a bookie, he just, I mean, the dunks, the power, which he was rebounding and all that kind of stuff. Like, you're right. I, I, I think KU fans obviously know about him and are pretty excited about him. Um, you know, I, I think it's fair to kind of keep it somewhat like, what does that mean from a snap perspective? Like, do we think he's a double-double guy next season? Do we think he's a guy that plays 25, 30 minutes? Like, I think kind of how – I think the beauty of him and his season is I'm not really sure, at least at this point, what to expect. I think we'll know around January – what to know, what to expect from him in terms of minutes and usage and all that kind of stuff. I just don't know if we know 100% today. I think for me, I would probably point to Mitch Lightfoot as the X factor for this team. Azubuke is probably a, you know, a, a 25 to 30 minute guy. Billy Preston is probably going to be 20 minute guy, somewhere in that range. The, the question is going to be if Lightfoot is playing well enough to steal minutes from either of those guys. You know, honestly, I think it'll be a good thing to have that happen because it means that we have a nice rotation that we can count on down low, especially if guys start getting into foul trouble. Um, but, you know, I think that will be the major factor there. If, if Lifeway can play well enough to, to force his way onto the floor without someone like Billy Preston just falling off completely, um, you know, that's only going to mean good things um, for this Kansas team. But, you know, I don't think there's a very good uh, chance of, of Preston, you know, just not playing well. So ultimately, seeing Lightfoot on the floor quite a bit means that he's kind of asserted himself and has gotten to the point where he's a solid rotation player for us that um, gives us a lot more options and will only mean good things for this Kansas team. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean I, people always kind of make fun of me for how excited I get about November basketball. I just, I really like the shaping of a college basketball team and kind of the process to get to Christmas break. Like, we kind of see how college basketball is trying to adjust to the rules and we get kind of fun non-con matchups in November and December. And then once January comes, some teams just transform to be different teams. Like I always say with KU, I don't think you can evaluate KU until January 1. Like, I just – the things they're bad at in December, they very rarely are bad at after Christmas break. That I think that's when coaching is. You have that, what, like eight days of – 
practices a little bit different, teams together, you have enough film on tape, you play together enough that your coaching staff can now go in and tinker a little bit when you have that respite between games. So I, I, I'm really excited for this KU team as we've been kind of talking through it of, all right, what's the seven, what's the rotation, what's the minutes, what's the expectation? Billy Preston's obviously going to be a different player in January than he is in the, uh, in the game early in the season against Kentucky. I think it's pretty fun. It's going to be fun to see where the, how the KU team develops. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and jump into our Twitter questions now. The first, actually, this will go ahead and continue the discussion that we've just been having. It's from Jayhawk for Life at Crimson and Blue Zero. Who do you think will be the leading scorer for Kansas this year? I will say Malik Newman. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that, but I think that it has to be Azubuke. I mean, I think he's just going to have so many options down low. I'm having trouble seeing anyone match his dominance down in the post, you know, or, or the sheer number of opportunities that he's going to get. All right, the other question we have, which should lead to a little bit more discussion, uh, is from Cameron Schneider at Hey Schneid. Who is more likely to be at their respective university in two years, Barry Odom or David Beatty? David Beatty. I, I'm probably – every day I get closer and closer to thinking that Barry Odom will not be back next season. And I think some of it is the Kim Anderson effect. I think that the Kim Anderson experiment went so poorly when they clearly tried to appease the fan base and hire a former alum that I think that part turns on Barry Odom. And with how good the basketball program is doing right now, at least in the preseason, we haven't seen them play yet, but the excitement and buzz around it to go into a very important winner for Missouri in terms of recruiting locally, which everyone said this is in-state talent for Missouri, one of the best in the last 20 years. To lose that momentum, I could see K, or excuse me, Missouri football trying to do something big. If you're David Beatty, I think you 100% deserve next season. So now you can say, all right, I've had four years at Kansas. I think if you're a KU fan, you knew it wasn't going to be a one, two season turnaround, that you had to be somewhat patient with Beatty. So I would say end of the season, I think they win one, maybe two Big 12 games. I think they beat Baylor at home. I could see him beating Iowa State on the road. We'll see what happens. And I could see him maybe sneaking in one other one towards the end of the season. But I think Beatty 100% gets next season. I don't think you can say that Barry Odom 100% gets next season. So based on that, I would say Odom. Or I would say that Beatty is more likely to be at KU in two years than Odom is likely to be at Missouri in two years. Yeah, I think I have to agree with you. I guess I hadn't realized how long Odom had been there. For some reason, I was thinking it was his his first year at Missouri, or, or or maybe the second. Second year for Odom. What's so frustrating from Odom as a Missouri Tiger fan is they hire their defensive coordinator and they're bad defensively. So it's kind of that office space. Like if if you can't coach defense, what do you do here? that they haven't taken a step forward in any aspect from last season to this season. They're worst offensively. They're the same defensively. They were bad last season. Their special teams is still bad. Last, uh, last, the last game they played was against Auburn. Their first eight snaps, they had four false start penalties, which to me is a direct reflection of coaching. It looked like they've quit at home. And they got beat 35-3 to three at home by, uh, to Purdue, and it wasn't close. Like, the game was over after the first quarter. They've just been so bad. Again, that I think Missouri fans of and I were kind of joking about it, have turned into KU fans. Hey, you try to get me to basketball season. We know the football team is not going anywhere. Just get me to basketball. I could just see them doing something to kind of swing everybody excited. I could see them at the end of the season firing the coach, a little two-week coaching search, 
They bring in a coach. Everybody's excited for next year, and we go from there. I just think Odom has to turn this thing around very quickly, or he's not getting a year or two. They play at Kentucky this week. If they go out there and get blown out by Kentucky, I could see something happening where he has to resign at the end of the season. Like, it's gotten that bad at Missouri. Yeah, I hadn't realized it had gotten quite that bad. You know, I, I keep hearing all the conventional wisdom is that you can't keep firing your head coach after just a couple of years. It's a little bit of a different situation for Mizzou since it's been so long since they've had a new coach. Um, but getting back to the Kansas side here, you know, Beatty's at the point where he's really starting to have some serious problems. And it's starting to look like, you know, now's the time to start asking if maybe we should, you know, explore whether we should be moving on to yet another head coach. Um, you know, we, we fired Gill after two years, we fired Weiss after two years, and now we're potentially looking at firing Beatty after three years. Um, there may be something to avoiding another firing so soon, but, you know, the, the issue here is that we aren't really seeing any improvement in year three. Obviously, Beatty has some real serious issues to clean up, but at, at the beginning of the year, you know, he said this was the year that we were definitely going to see tangible progress. Instead, it looks like we're regressing, that we're, that we're going backwards. So I can't necessarily be upset at KU fans that are looking to get rid of him. Um, I definitely think that there's other issues we need to address first, you know, before we get rid of the head coach, and specifically defensive coordinator and then athletic director. But, um, you know, I, I actually will go ahead and ask you about that. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to, but we, we've kind of been, well, I guess the best way to put it is that we've been leading the charge in terms of, getting rid of Zanger, you know, saying that he, basically he's had, you know, seven years to improve the football program. He's now had two definitely failed hires and another one that that looks like it's most likely going to be a failed hire in Beatty. Um, although that last one may just kind of be a direct result of just how bad Charlie Weiss left the program. But is it unreasonable at this point to be saying that the real issue is actually the athletic director and that we should be looking at moving on from Zanger? This is one of those questions that I can admit my limitation in being able to answer because I cheer for Missouri and not Kansas. That if MU had the basketball program that Kansas has and they were just bad at football, and but I know it's different too because it was already built before Shanzinger got there. So it's not like she hired Bill and now they've built this thing. That obviously I think a big part of his job is just kind of keeping Bill happy and keeping everything in line that kind of struggles with. I think you have to ask yourself as a KU fan, like what do you want the school to be? That I think it's very feasible that KU could be North Carolina. Carolina has an elite basketball program, but is good in football, competitive in football. And do you think this is the person to do it? That obviously if you fire Shane Zinger, it's not upsetting the apple cart. Oh, excuse me, Bill's not leaving. Right. You still got Allen. You still have the streak. You still have all of that. I think that's the question. Like, I kind of think that's the ceiling of what KU can be. Maybe you and I, excuse me, maybe you and I disagree on that. I think that being North Carolina is a very realistic ceiling. I mean, Carolina had the number two pick last year in the NFL draft. They're a team that can win eight, seven games, be competitive, but there is a clear emphasis on, all right, this is a basketball school, and everybody knows that. I think that's the expectation to get Kansas to where they're at. Do you think Shane Zinger can do that? I think that's a, that's kind of one of those questions that KU fans, if you're fine with how things are and you're frustrated with football, but hell, football season only lasts a month. I mean, late night, the fog just happened on Saturday. So now our focus is on basketball. Then no, then, then just keep Shane Zinger and well, he has to hire another coach. Hopefully he gets it right. Well, I mean, I think that's kind of what the issue is, though. We, we've talked about this quite a bit as well. If Beatty isn't the answer, then you have three football coaches who have flamed out pretty quickly. And so the question becomes, can you trust him to be able to find the right guy to fix it? 
I mean, I know that's pretty hard to do at a place like Kansas, but, you know, in the last few searches, we've overlooked guys like Ed Warner and other better options that we just didn't seem to get really serious in pursuing. You know, I think one of the things that scares us most is, if you think about it, what happens if Bill Self leaves for whatever reason? You know, do do we really trust Zanger to be able to hire the right guy to continue the success that Bill Self has built here? Um, or, you know, is, is there that, that concern that, he may have a problem finding a guy that can even just keep that going. Yeah, I guess I, my argument for Shane Singer to be would be is at Kansas, there is a limited pool of a money you're going to spend for a football coach. Like it's not like KU's in the argument of, all right, hey, we'll spend $3 million for a football coach. That would obviously open the net of what KU could get. But in basketball, I mean, you could hire – just about any coach that you want. Like, think of think of the coaches that would say no to an interview with Kansas. I would say every NBA coach, probably. I mean, there might be a coach at the bottom end of the NBA, but let's just assume all NBA coaches. Right. All right, when you get to college, Coach K's not taking the interview. Calipari's not taking the interview. Izzo, those kind of coaches. So it's maybe, what, 10 coaches, 12 coaches that don't even interview. So if every basketball coach, there's only 50 or so that's off limits. Like, yeah, I trust your ability to do it. You can go get Greg Marshall. Like, you can do so many different things. But my fear wouldn't be in Shane Zinger hiring a basketball coach. Just how could you mess up KU? Like, with what all the advantages that KU has when it comes to basketball, like, how could you hire a bad coach? Yeah, I, I guess I can see that argument. But, you know, I, I know there's been enough of an issue with Zinger's football hires that there's a lot of concern there. Now, I will say that Kansas is not a school that just refuses to spend money on football. You know, they've started fundraising for a $300 million stadium upgrade. They put in a lot of money to upgrade facilities in the last few years as well. Despite the low salary they, they paid to Beatty when he started, you know, they threw a lot of money at Charlie Weiss to try to get an impactful coach. And, and while Beatty did come in on such a small contract, the first sign of success, you know, that huge out-of-nowhere upset went over Texas. They gave him a huge raise and then started to spend a bunch on, on some assistance to try to improve the, uh, the, the coaching situation. So there, there's definitely the appetite to spend big to build a successful football program, but there just hasn't been in any, any kind of progress to really justify throwing a bunch more money at the football program. Um, you know, if, if, if we found a coach that could get us to back-to-back bowl games or even, you know, two bowl games in a three- to four-year period, I think you would see a ton more football spending. Um, the donors would be clamoring for that next step to kind of build a consistent program. I realize it isn't realistic to think that Kansas will ever be a football powerhouse, and I'm, but I'm not really even looking for that. You know, I'd be happy with a team that goes to bowls more times than not in a 15-year period or so and, and maybe occasionally get to a higher-tier bowl. But I, I at least just want to see a respectable program that has enough you know, highlights for us to actually be able to want to watch it week in and week out. And, you know, at this point, there just isn't a logical reason to watch this team. And it seems like every week they find a way to unlearn something and embarrass themselves. Uh, eventually, they have to find a way to get a coach in there. But I'm just not sure that I trust Zanger to be the guy who finds that coach. I think it's a pretty fair question. The only thing I'd maybe push back on is I think I think spending on facilities and those things at least differ in the ability to attract a coach based on salary. Like Missouri's kind of in the same thing. Like Missouri has raised a lot of money to renovate the stadium, but whenever you come time to hire a football coach, man, in the SEC, if you're not willing to spend two and a half, three million dollars to attract a coach, like you are just going to be taking the ultimate dice roll on what you're going to do. So I guess I would just say at KU, like the question then is on salary, 
who are you interested in? How much are you willing to pay to attract them to your university? Money is the ultimate attractor to anybody that I just think with KU that if you're going to stay in this one and a half million dollar range, like you're always going to be looking to get that top flight assistant. And I actually don't fault Shane Zinger for two out of the three hires. I thought the Charlie Weiss hire was really bad because if you couldn't win at Notre Dame with all those advantages, how are you going to win at Kansas at a high level with all those disadvantages? I thought, I thought the, the Turner Gill hire was a good shot. He was a good mid-major coach. It seemed like it could be a good fit for Kansas. Like, I actually don't fault them for taking that shot. I kind of liken it to, I mean, drafting a quarterback is never a bad thing. You might draft the wrong quarterback, but I'm never going to fault you for drafting a quarterback. So I actually don't think the Turner Gill hire was that bad. I don't think that the David Beatty hire is a bad hire. You hire a top-flight recruiter out of Texas A&M, you kind of point to you could kind of point to players that he brought in and guys that he liked. He was really energetic, really personable, the anti-Charlie Weiss when it came to donors and accessibility and likability. I can see why they went in that direction. It just hasn't worked for whatever reason. So I understand the frustration of, our right, this guy would have to hire another one. But I don't think the process, at least in two of the three hires, has been faulty logic. Well, I mean, when you boil it down that far and then look at that high level, you know, um, yeah, I mean, that, that that makes sense. But I, I know there were definitely some issues surrounding the Beatty hire. There, there was a lot of talk that Ed Warner was actually going to be offered the head coaching position. Like he had an offer in hand, um, but it, it came with a stipulation that he had to keep David Bowen on as the defensive coordinator. And that was just something he wasn't he, he wasn't willing to do. Um, you know, I, I don't have any like concrete sources, like person people I can definitely definitively say saw the contract or anything like that. But, um, you know, we 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 definitely have kind of some, some ears to the ground there that, and, and there's been enough chatter collectively to convince me and, and most of the other people on the site, you know, that this was a big reason that Beatty was chosen because he was, you know, he, he was really close with Bowen when they were both here on Mark Mangino's staff, um, you know, and he hadn't really been head coach before, but it was a great opportunity for him to get that head coaching experience. And, you know, if, if he has to keep a good friend in, in Bowen around as a defensive coordinator to do that, that's not a real big issue for him at that point. So. Um, you know, it really, it just, it just seems like the, the thought process there was a real big issue, you know? And, and I mean, it, it seemed like they were just maintaining that Bones was such a big Kansas guy that loved the university so much that, you know, he obviously was going to be a huge asset that they just had to keep on staff. And, you know, that kind of process, process, like the way that they were thinking through that is what a lot of Kansas fans are, are questioning at this point. I mean, having, you know, the, the rah-rah guy is good when you need to get excitement back into the program and raise money. And, and, and Beatty is doing a great job at that. I mean, personally, you know, I get pulled in all the time when he's talking because you can just see the passion that he has and that enthusiasm that he has that draws people in and makes them want to, you know, support him and support his teams. But, you know, it's just we, we have changes that have to be made to improve this team. And I'm not sure that Beatty's the guy to do it. And, you know, the question is, if, if he's not the guy to do it, well, then can we trust Zanger to actually find the guy that can do that? When it seems like he, you know, whiffed on quite a few um, of these potential decisions. I mean, you know, the, the hope is that after the, the West Virginia game, you know, maybe we have more time this season for them to get some improvement and then we can evaluate it again at the end of the year. Um, but, you know, I'm not really sure 
that the bye week is going to be enough for them to regroup and kind of, and come up with that decent plan that they need to get a couple wins. Though the real hope is at this point that the team can get that win against Baylor because if you know if, if we're staring down another one eleven season, this is going to get ugly really quick. That Baylor game to me is the one as a KU fan. I'm ninety five percent sure that Baylor game is at Lawrence. That's a game you have to hold to David Beatty and say, you said last year it would be about results. You have to beat Baylor. I don't think Baylor wins a Big 12 game aside from Kansas. So if you go 0 and will be 9 in the Big 12 and you lost to Baylor in that at home, I do think that's grounds to be upset at David Beatty. So I would say if you are a K, or if you're a KU fan, you're looking to hold this team to some kind of standard. That has to be the one. You can't lose at home to Baylor. Baylor's not a good football team. Agreed. And I think the argument that we've been making is that if you're going to hold Beatty accountable, then you have to hold Zanger accountable as well. Since the main thing he said he was going to do when he was hired was to come in and fix the, fo- the football program. You know, he's, he's had seven years, and no matter how bad the situation was when he started, if you say you're going to fix the program and you hired three guys to try to do it and none of them worked, then it's probably time to go in a different direction. No, and I think that's a fair expectation and criticism to levy at KU in the athletic department that, hey, you've asked for donor money to get you said building and said project. We've done that. All right. You have to hand us a consistent project. It was just, it was disappointing to me as someone, because I remember you and I talked about this beginning of the season. I thought KU was going to, I thought KU could have won four games this year. You got to be close against Central Michigan. And, I mean, it was hard to tell in the game against Ohio who was the Big 12 team and who was the back school. Like, you couldn't tell which was which. And it was just such a clear divide in talent and coaching that just really jumped off the television that I do think is cause for concern that I'm not here to defend David Beatty. David Beatty has, what, two wins or three wins as the head coach of Kansas? Right. So it's not like you, it, it's not like if he gets fired, you can say, oh, man, you guys didn't give me enough or enough time. Well, you had three seasons. You won three games. That hard. Well, it's time for us to go in a different direction. I don't think he can complain about that. I would just say is, I think very few coaches, aside from the elite coaches, could have had that thing turned around in less than three seasons. He's going into season four next year. Let's see where they're at. And then I think it's, all right, here's the win expectation. I don't want to have a tangible feel good. You need to win X amount of games or you can't get that fifth year. I think that's a fair thing to hold David Beatty to. Yeah, and just to hammer home the point, Beatty has three wins in three seasons, but only one is against a FBS school. You know, when when two of your wins come against the bottom of the barrel FCS teams and the other win is a game where you got six turnovers and still probably should have lost the game, it's it's not really possible, I think, to consider that progress at all. All right, you know, I, I think we'll go ahead and leave it here. Um, thank you so much for, for, for joining me tonight, C-Dot. It's It's been great. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on, man. Anytime you want to talk. Yeah, I think for sure we'll have to do a postmortem on the football season. You know, I'm not seeing any kind of chance that either of these teams are going bowling. But, uh, you know, one, one of our sister sites, uh, Bring on the Cats, that, that covers the, uh, the the Kansas State Wildcats, created their own game on the bye week. Basically, they decided that they, they didn't want to deal with the bye week. So they, so they found an opponent and played a game against them on, I believe it was a PS3. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about trying to do something similar for our bye weeks um, since they coincided, but it was just too much to try to put together that quickly. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe we can do that to kind of wrap up the season, do that as like a bowl game. 
since I, I you know it's not realistic that either of these teams are, are going to be playing a game at that point. So. Sounds good. I'm uh, I'm down. Whatever you guys need me to do. All right. Sounds good. Thanks again for joining us, and and you listeners out there, thanks for taking the time to listen to us tonight. You know, we'll, we'll have another episode for you on Friday. We're going to be previewing the game against Texas Tech, and hopefully, you know, we'll have some some positive spin to talk about with that. Uh, but once again, thanks thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Rock Chalk Talking Podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.